Welcome to Trailhead Church. Uh, my name is Steve. I'm the lead pastor. And um, a little bit of housekeeping. I want to let you know of an important change that we are going to be making in the times of our services. Uh, starting at the beginning of June, uh, our two services are going to be at 9 and 1045. Now, it doesn't affect you guys at all. Okay, so if you're regular 9 a.m.ers, you're fine. You don't even have to remember I've said anything. You can show up um, and you can be light like normal. Um, but for those who do come to the 11 a.m., um, we are moving it forward. And, and, and I'll give you a very good reason. It's, it's because um, we have found that our attendance at the 9 a.m. has consistently been about 30% higher than our 11. And a lot of that is because we have so many young families and, um, and so our young families tend to want to come to an earlier service. By moving it to 1045, uh, we think that's going to be a more attractive time really to help balance it out for kids' ministry. Because down at Trailhead Kids, um, they, they get a ton more kids at the 9 a.m. than at the 11. And we're hoping by moving it to 1045 that, that that's going to become a, a little bit more attractive option for some of our, our families. Okay, so that's, that's the rationale, uh, that's what's happening, and that's going to happen the first week in June, so about three weeks from now, we're going to be shifting to 9 and 1045, just so you are aware. All right, so good morning and happy Mother's Day. Uh, today, obviously, is the day that our, our society sets aside. Moms, this is your one day, so I hope, I hope you enjoy it. Um, now, here's the thing, as much as we love Mother's Day, and we love our moms. It is a complex day. And, uh, and every year, I'm just kind of, I have to wrestle with this. Um, and so this year, I'm going to go back to a liturgy that I've read in the past that, that I think uh, does well with the complexity of today. It was written by a blogger named Amy Young. And, and I've modified it a bit for our, our context, for our liturgy. Um, but I offer this to you as a way to celebrate the day. To those who gave birth this year to their first and next child, we celebrate with you. To those who lost a child this year, we mourn with you. To those who are in the trenches with little ones every day and wear the badge of food stains, we appreciate you. To those who experience loss through miscarriage, failed adoptions, or running away, we mourn with you. To those who walk the hard path of infertility, fraught with pokes, prods, tears, hope, and sometimes the shattering of hope, we walk with you, though often imperfectly. To those who are foster moms, mentor moms, and spiritual moms, we need you. To those of you who are walking the path of parenthood alone, for whatever reason, we are amazed by you and walk with you. To those of you who have warm and close relationships with your children, <clears throat> we celebrate with you. To those who have disappointment, heartache, and distance with your children. We sit with you. To those who lost their mothers this year or in years past, we honor your grief. To those who experienced abuse at the hands of your own mother, our hearts hurt for your experience. To those who are single and long to be married and mothering your own children, we honor your loneliness and want to walk with you in it. To those who are step-parents, foster parents, or have adopted, we are thankful for you and walk with you in these complex paths. To those who will have emptier nests this upcoming year, we grieve and rejoice with you. To those who place their children up for adoption, 
We commend you for your selflessness and remember how you hold that child in your heart. To those of you who have had an abortion, we share grace with you. And to those who are pregnant with new life, both expected and surprised, we anticipate with you. This Mother's Day, we walk with you. Mothering is not for the faint of heart. We have real warriors in our midst, and we remember you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this incredible gift of family and the complexity of love. We thank you, Lord, for the glory that comes in our hope for love and our experience of relationship. And Lord, we thank you for the promise of redemption, of resurrection, when those anticipated hopes, when those desires fail. Father, I pray your rich blessing on us as a community, that we might be a community that grieves well with those who grieve and celebrates well with those who celebrate that we would share love first and foremost. I pray your rich blessing on each one. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you guys, grab your Bibles. This morning, we are going back to a sermon series that we started in 2015. Um, We're going back to the book of Acts. Now, we covered the first 15 chapters. The book of Acts is 28 chapters long. Uh, And I don't know. We spent like 5,000 weeks getting through the first 15 chapters. It was, it was awesome. Uh, but once chapter 15 is kind of a turning point in the letter. And once we got to 15, we decided to take a little bit of a break and kind of deal with some topical stuff. And, and, uh, and so for the summer, starting this morning and, and really through the summer, we're going to be working our way through the rest of the book of Acts. And, um, and so we're going to Acts chapter 16 this morning, Acts chapter 16. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 5. Now, in, in our Bibles, if you're using one of ours, we're going over to page 924. Um, before I read the text to help set it up, Paul's going to be beginning his second, what is known as his second missionary journey in Acts chapter 16. His first missionary journey was taken with his mentor, Barnabas, and um, they went into land that, that people had never heard of Jesus. Um, many of them were, were not even monotheistic in, in their culture and their understanding of God, and they moved out with this incredible message of a Savior, that Jesus came, died, and rose again. And um, they saw incredible fruit, and, and now it comes time for the second journey. Um, there is a missionary impulse. There is a sending impulse. There is a moving impulse in the book of Acts. It's been said that the local church will either be a mission, a museum, or a mausoleum. I'll repeat that. It's been said that the local church will either be a mission, a museum, or a mausoleum. It will either be on mission, lit up with the power and the reality of the gospel, eager to experience more grace and eager to share that grace with others so they can experience it too, lit up and and ready to risk it all, that by all means, God might save some, right? There is a zeal that comes with being lit up with mission. Or the church will be a museum, looking back to the time when they were on mission, often referred to as the good old days, right? When we look back and and, and this group is, is 
is looking back and not forward. They're not really ready to risk because they're much more about protection. That's what you do in museums. You protect what is valuable. You don't risk it. You look back and protect what has been created. You don't risk it to create anything new. We look back to the way our leaders did it. We, we celebrate the pew that grandma sacrificed to donate. We don't want things moved. We don't want things changed. We're interested in protecting buildings, traditions, size, our personal experience. We're more interested in protection than we are in reaching new people. The thing with museums is they don't take long to turn into mausoleums. Mausoleums are the house of the dead. Dead traditions, a building filled with dead people, doing what they've always done, not even realizing they're dead. Some of you may have heard the verse from Revelation chapter 3. Revelation 3.20, it's used in some circles as a tool of evangelism. Behold, this is Jesus speaking, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will, I will come in and eat with him, right? And, and evangelists will preach this and say, man, all you got to do is, is Jesus is knocking at the door of your heart, and all you got to do is let him in. And if you'll let him in, you'll have a great meal with him, and, and you'll have a relationship with him. And here's the thing, that can be great evangelism. It's really poor exegesis, because that's not what the verse is about, and that's not what it's saying. Now, here, here's what I will say. God uses bad exegesis all the time, praise God. And, uh, and he does incredible things through bad preaching. I'm very thankful for that. Um, but here's the thing. Um, Jesus is not speaking to unbelievers in that verse. He's speaking to the church in Laodicea. It is a church that, that he has previously said is lukewarm. You're neither hot nor cold. You are lukewarm, and, and you're in danger of being spit out of my mouth. Interesting image, you guys, that Jesus is standing outside of his own church, knocking on the door and asking, isn't he going to let me in? It's his own church, and he's knocking on the door. Isn't, isn't there anyone in there? that misses me? Laodicea was a museum that was turning into a mausoleum. They were a church that had left their first love and was in the process of becoming the memory of a church instead of an actual church. They were no longer interested in following Jesus. Here's the thing, you guys. This is kind of where I'm going this morning. If we are not on mission, then we're not following Jesus. And if we're not following Jesus, it won't be long until we are fake Christians in a fake church. Because the church will either be on mission or it will be a museum, and then it will become a mausoleum. So how do we know if we're on mission? What does that even mean? I think our text this morning is going to give us some insight, um, but let me give you the the take-home. It's this. the, The heart of mission is love. The heart of mission is love. Being on mission requires us to sacrifice in love so that others can experience grace. That's the heart of mission. So I want, you to re- I want to remind you while I read the text, we're, we're moving into this call and response. Um, I'm going to read the text. I'm going to say the word of the Lord. You're going to say, yeah, you guys didn't do so well last week, so I'm just going to let you know 
we had a guest preacher in, and, and I wasn't up here to kind of, and that's okay, we're just learning this thing, but, but we're doing this, all right? We're actually going to do this thing, and so uh, I'm going to read the text, I'm going to say the word of the Lord, and, and you're going to say thanks be to God. Let's look at Acts chapter 16, verses 1 through 5. Paul came also from Derby and to Lystra. A place was there, or excuse me, a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him, and because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in number daily. The word of the Lord. All right, you guys, um, at the end of last chapter, at the end of of Acts 15, um, Acts 15 is this incredible chapter in which the the early church gathers to have this huge council because because you got these new believers, these Gentile, non-Jewish believers coming into the church with different customs and different habits and different, different eating, and they don't obey, obey the, the law of Moses, and all the Jews are getting offended, and they're freaking out. They're like, how can we do this? How can we have a church that, that isn't monocultural? How can we have a church that's actually representative of diversity, where people are different than me, and they look different and act different and, and eat differently and speak differently and have different convictions and beliefs than I do? How can we possibly come together and find unity? And in Acts chapter 15, we see one of, the, one of the incredible major victories of the early church. Instead of splitting and becoming two churches, the, the Jewish church and the Gentile church, they forge ahead and they find unity. Led by the Spirit, man, they, they, they overcome their first major internal conflict and find unity. Ironically, at the end of the chapter, Barnabas and Paul, the, the two leaders of the mission of the early church, um, don't find unity. Uh, in fact, they find sharp disagreement um, about how they should move forward on mission, and they end up um, respectfully but decisively moving in two different directions. Barnabas takes John Mark, a young man that he wants to invest in with him, and he sails off to Cyprus. And uh, Paul takes Silas, a young man he wants to invest in, and, and he instead travels about 250 miles by foot up to, um, up to Derby. And, uh, and, and it's there that he runs into this young guy named Timothy. Now, Paul is building a new ministry team, and, and, and Timothy is a new believer in this community, and, and he wants Timothy to, to travel with him. He wants him to be on his ministry team. So Paul brings him in, but not without requiring something of him first. Uh, now, it's mentioned so quickly in the text. Some of you may not have even noticed it. It's, it's real easy to miss or at least to miss the significance of it, right? Uh, verse 3, just to remind you, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. All right, so Timothy. Timothy's mother is Jewish. Timothy's mother is a believer. She responded to the gospel and became a believer, as did Timothy. The broader Jewish culture would have considered Timothy Jewish because uh, they looked at it as, as the, the racial heritage was handed down through the mother. So if your mother was Jewish, you were Jewish, okay? even though his father was a Greek. So the, the broader Jewish world would have seen him as Jewish, even though he was raised 
by Greeks. Now, having been raised by a Greek father, it means that he wasn't circumcised. So let's talk a little bit about circumcision. Uh, So many of you know that I became a believer um, at a Bible college, which is a really weird thing. Um, But it's my story, and I love it. Um, but after I became a believer, I started actually reading the Bible, and I actually started studying. Uh, good thing that it happened at a Bible college. It was really convenient. And, um, and while I was there, I made some great friends. I met Lauren, my, my, who is my wife, my best friend. I, I met um, guys that became my, my, just my dear friends. A guy named Donnie was, was really, really close. He was from a small town in rural Iowa. He and I couldn't have had more different backgrounds. He came from a super conservative family. He was raised in this super conservative small church, and apparently circumcision was not a polite topic to talk about in his circles because he didn't know what it was. And so one day we were in a, an Old Testament class of some sort, and, and we were reading through an Old Testament story, and circumcision was mentioned, and he leaned over to me in class and, and said, hey, Steve, what's circumcision? So being a brand new believer filled with the Spirit, I did what any good friend would do. I told him to ask the cute girl who was sitting right across from him. True story. So he did. He did. And she was the model of graciousness that I was not. And actually explained it to him. Um, thankfully, both he and she forgave me later for, for my uh, immaturity. But um, that happened. So here's the thing. If, if you don't know what it is, let me just tell you. Uh, circumcision is the surgical procedure where the foreskin of the penis is cut off. That's, that's really all it is. It's, it's a, it is a surgical procedure that are, is performed on males to cut off the foreskin of the penis. And in cultures like ours, it is practiced widely. Almost everybody has it done in the hospital, right? And so it's actually really common today that guys don't even know what it is and didn't know it was done to them because everybody has had it done when they were a kid, right? And, and as a result, they, they don't know anything different. But here's the thing. It wasn't common in the ancient world. In the ancient world, the Jews were some of the only people who practiced this. It was, in fact, part of the Old Testament law. Every Jewish boy had to be circumcised on the eighth day. And so that was a sign of being in the Abrahamic covenant. It was a sign of being Jewish. It was a sign of being part of that culture. And and it was was a point of of spiritual religious identity and, and, and even pride, right? It was so important that Jewish people often referred to the rest of the world as the uncircumcised, right? We're the circumcised, they're the uncircumcised, and it it meant a whole lot more than simply that a a foreskin hadn't been cut off. It was was a derogatory term. Um, It was very much like when I moved to St. Louis way back in the day. I lived in South County, and, and people kept talking about Hoosiers. I'm like, why do you guys not like people from Indiana? right? Because that's all I knew. I had seen the movie Hoosiers, and I thought that's, and they're like, no, we're not talking about people from Indiana. We're talking about people from Jefferson County. We're talking about, we were in South County. This was farther south, right? And so it was a derogatory term to talk about people that, that kind of lived out in the, in the boondocks, right? Here's the thing. Timothy was part of the uncircumcision, even though he would have been considered a Jew. 
And that would have actually been a, a double barrier because not only was he uncircumcised, but he was racially a Jew and therefore should have been. The unbelieving Jews that they were trying to reach with the gospel would not have been able to hear the gospel because of their offense. So, so they would have gone and tried to tell them about Jesus, and all they would have heard is uncircumcised. <laughs> I'm still not quite sure how they would have known. <laughs> Jewish men have some kind of weird um, circumcision detector I don't understand, and I am a Jewish man. And so I, this is maybe ancient stuff, but um, here's the thing. If Timothy was going to be on mission, he had to pay the cost. He had to give up the foreskin. Now, let that sink in for a minute, because <laughs> he wasn't a little kid. <laughs> he was, at this point, somewhere between 16 and 20. He knew what was going on, right? And Luke, in his account, is so casual about it. He's like, yeah, you know, Paul took him and circumcised him. Not, not like Paul sent him to a... No, Paul took him and circumcised him. And I thought we demanded a lot of our interns, right? I mean, like, like that is serious commitment. What he's saying is if you're going to share this message of love, you need to be willing to sacrifice so others can receive grace. If you're going to share this message of love, you have to sacrifice so that others can receive grace. And the dudes are like, Steve, I'm already circumcised. We're good. The ladies are like, it's an apply to me at all, right? Well, how does this even... All right, good questions. I'm glad you asked. So let me tell you. First of all, God uses circumcision as a symbol of a deeper reality, right? It is, it is representative of a spiritual change that takes place in you when you become a believer in Jesus. Let me throw some verses up on the screen. This is Romans 2, verses 28 and 29. It says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So it was a physical right, right? We're not, <laughs> we're not saying Paul went and did some spiritual thing to, to Timothy. It was physical, um, but it has spiritual significance, when, when Jesus came and, and fulfilled the Old Testament, um, the spiritual meaning became the primary meaning. The physical meaning became secondary and, in fact, almost irrelevant. It was irrelevant. Jesus no longer cared if people were physically circumcised. That was one of the debates in the early church is when all these Gentiles became believers and they, they became part of the faith, does that mean they also have to become Jewish? Do they have to be circumcised to, to become um, followers of Jesus? And the answer was absolutely not. In fact, there's a whole other story in the New Testament where, where Paul went to Jerusalem and he took another young man with him by the name of Titus. And when he got to Jerusalem, he refused to have Titus circumcised, even though it was offending the Jewish Christian leaders. He was basically saying, look, you don't have to be physically circumcised. You don't have to enter into obedience to the Mosaic law. That was fulfilled in Christ. It is now spiritual, right? The, the physical cutting away of the skin represented the spiritual cutting away 
of the old nature, who you were before you believed in Jesus. It was the cutting away of a sinful, selfish, self-focused motivation and behavior. It's a circumcision of the heart, a cutting away of, of the flesh. The flesh is a, a term used throughout the New Testament to talk about our old nature. As those who have believed in Christ, we still have the flesh, this old nature, even though we've been given a new nature in Christ, and we, we have been, it has been cut away, but it's also progressively cut away. So like its, a, it's authority and power over us has already been severed by the work of Christ, but, but we need to then walk into the reality of that freedom. And that requires an ongoing severance from those sinful, selfish, self-focused motivations and behaviors. So every believer is spiritually circumcised, and every believer has to grow in the experience of circumcision. We need to grow in our experience of having those, that fleshly, selfish part of ourselves cut away. You are, as a believer, progressively learning to walk in the power of your circumcised heart. So real circumcision is spiritual, something that happens in us and works its way through us. It is the work of God on our behalf in us that then works out and changes us and frees us. Now, Timothy was actually circumcised. He was physically circumcised, and, and he did it because the mission of the gospel requires sacrifice. This shouldn't sur- surprise us. The gospel is a message of love, and all love requires sacrifice. One of the most common phrases we see, the combination of when it talks about God's love, it talks about God giving, right? For God so loved, loved that he gave. We see that combination continually. God loved, so he gave. God loved, so he gave. You guys, this is a pattern that is true of everyone who loves. If you love, you give. If you love, you sacrifice. You set aside your selfish desires, your craving for comfort, your need to say me first in order to put the other person first, in order to make the other person happy, in order to meet the other person's needs, in order to honor their joy and increase their happiness. You sacrifice for their good. All love manifests itself in this kind of giving. If you say that you love someone and yet you never sacrifice for them, you don't love them. You're using them. You're wrapping them up in your story of self-centered, self-gratifying, self-love. And you appreciate them as long as they meet your narrative and fit your agenda for self-love. True love sacrifices. True love gives. And you guys, the gospel is a message of love. That's what it is. It is a message of love. In order to love us, God set aside his comfort, stepped out of of his place of privilege, that we might be blessed. God sent Jesus Philippians 2 talks about how 
how Jesus himself didn't consider his experience of equality with God, his experience of the glory of God, something to be grasped and held on to selfishly at all costs, but instead he emptied himself to take on the form of a servant. God loved, so God gave. God loved, so God sacrificed. The message of the gospel is the message of a God who set aside His comfort to meet us in our need, and then He stepped out in love so we could receive the benefits of grace. It's His nature, right? When we talk about God is love, we're not talking about some abstract condition or experience. We're saying that He is the essence and expression of self-giving, selfless love. It's who He is. God loves, so God gives. It is the expression of His nature, but it isn't the expression of ours. Because we're not like God in our sin. See, our sin bends that impulse to give into an impulse to take. It bends that that natural expression of love for the benefit of others into a demand to be loved. It moves our hearts from a a posture of seeking to bless others into a deep and selfish desire to be blessed. And as a result, we are in love with our own comfort, our own security, our own prestige. And we're on mission to protect it. which is why we struggle to sacrifice. It's why we struggle to make ourselves uncomfortable for the benefit of others. It's why we struggle to lay down our good for the benefit of others. It's why we struggle to put other people's desires and needs above our own. To love like God loves requires a cutting away of the sinful, self-focused, self-obsessed desires of our hearts. So here's the tension, you guys. You can't be on mission for the gospel and at the same time be on mission for your own comfort. You can't be on a mission of love, which is a mission of giving, and also be on a, on a mission of, of self-protection right? You're either going to be moving out in love toward others, or you're going to be pulling in in love toward self. To be on mission for others means we need to push into God's mission for us. To love others so they can receive grace, we need to push into our experience of grace. Because here's the thing, you don't have the ability to circumcise your own heart. You don't have the ability to overcome these these sinful, self-focused, self-obsessed passions of your heart on your own. You can't do it in your own power. This is not an issue of willpower and self-control. It is is an issue of responding to love. You guys, this is the true mission of the church. And we need to keep this clear because if we're going to be on mission instead of turning into a museum. We need to be disciples who make disciples. 
We need to take the Great Commission and, and live it out, right? When Jesus met with his disciples and, and said to them, man, I got, I got a job description for you, man. I'm going to be taken off, but, but here's, here's your job, man. Go and make disciples, or more literally, as you are going, make disciples. Be disciples who m- make disciples. As you're living your life, as you're working your jobs, as you're, as you're involved in youth sports, as you are achieving your educational goals, as you are moving through life, be disciples who make disciples. The missionary impulse of the New Testament is never described in professional terms. The church's obsession with professional missionaries is absolutely unhealthy. The idea that somehow it's those who get paid to do the work of the gospel that devote themselves full-time to the work of the gospel. Full-time pastors, full-time missionaries. If you are a believer in Christ, you are a full-time believer in Christ. If you are a believer in Christ, you are called to full-time mission. Because you're either following or you're not. You're either on mission for Christ or you're on mission for self. Followers of Christ, if we are going to be a church on mission, it requires us individually to take the Great Commission seriously. As you are going, be disciples who make disciples. Be disciples. That means, man, consume grace. (laughs) Consume the love of God. Consume the gospel. You want to consume something, consume that. Right? That this message that God loves you unconditionally, unreservedly, insanely. That God has covered you with with the glory of His Son. That when He looks at you, He sees his, His beloved Son, His beloved Daughter. And He rejoices in you. He delights in you. Not because you've earned it, which means you can't lose it. Not not in, in spite of your flaws, but because he's going to change your flaws. He loves you so much that, that, that in your discipleship, he is going to transform you into the very image of his son. Be disciples. Go deep in grace. Grow in your relationship with God. Allow your heart to be undone and remade by the love of God. And as a disciple, make disciples. Lead others into the experience of grace. Somebody asked me recently, Steve, what does it mean to make a disciple? How can I, how can I disciple people when I'm so flawed, when, when I'm so broken? I look at myself and all I, I see are my weaknesses, all I see are my shortcomings. How am I supposed to go out and make disciples? I said, dude, you're looking at it wrong. Discipleship isn't about replicating yourself. It's about replicating Christ. And the only way you do that is, is not by replicating your success, but by replicating your dependence. That's the heart of discipleship. Inviting people in to being undone and remade by the love of God. Be disciples who make disciples. Be people who know Jesus and are inviting others to know Him as well. Experience grace and then invite others into that experience. 
Listen, it is when we lose our experience of grace that we grow cold to the gospel. It is when we lose the experience of being loved by God that we simply become religious. We start going through the motions. And we start doing the right things because they're the right things to do. And we keep doing the moral things because we have a moral image of ourselves we need to uphold. We consider the flaws in our hearts as problems with self-control instead of problems with our heart's affections. It is when we undervalue the love of God that we start to overvalue our desire and need for comfort and safety. The solution is the mission. It is to experience the love of God more deeply because it's in being loved that our hearts are free to love. You guys know this. You are most free in your sacrifices. You are most free in your self-giving in the context of loving and being loved. In the context of of this community of love, that, that is where you actually find the freedom. Like, you actually not only stay up late with the kid, you get up the second time even though it's not your turn. Why? Not because you want a plaque. I mean, you might want kudos, right? And they're not bad. But you are most blessed when you are most free to bless. You, you are filled with most joy when you're doing it purely because you want to increase the joy of others. You've tasted this. You know what I'm talking about. That's the heart of the mission of the gospel. We sacrifice most freely when we are loved most fully. Every friend who gives up personal comfort for the benefit of their friend, every person who forgoes a self-indulgence, whatever it is, whether it's a, an extra coffee from Starbucks or an expensive car or house so that somebody else can be blessed, when we love, we sacrifice. And what makes the sacrifice tolerable is the love. Love is the anesthesia that makes it possible. It is in being loved and in the context of love that the sacrifice no longer feels like sacrifice. It starts feeling like love and joy. Sacrifice hurts the most when we love the least. That's when small sacrifices start feeling like giant wounds. The problem isn't out there. The problem's in here. We have grown cold to the radical, abundant mercy of God. You guys, that's where the church gets off track. When we stop being amazed by the love of God. That's how a church moves from being on mission to becoming a museum and later a mausoleum. They are no longer vibrantly experiencing the love of God. They're remembering a time they did. They're no longer vibrantly being undone and remade by the love of God. They are simply a museum that speaks about it like an art gallery speaks about old, dead work that they no longer even appreciate. 
and every sacrifice starts to hurt more and every discomfort becomes monumental. We stop taking risks, we stop praying, we stop pushing out. So for people like me, for pastors, the temptation is to become in that space more concerned with the voice of the insider than the need of the outsider. To be more concerned with keeping what I have than reaching those who don't know. To start craving security and start defining success as as numbers instead of reach. The temptation for the church is to start to become protective of their experience of the church. I like this church. I like this size. I like this worship style. I like the way it feels right now. I I like this. And so we become protective of our experience more than we become passionate about spreading the experience. We don't want to sacrifice what we enjoy so that others can be enriched. When we do this, you guys, the love of self will trump the gospel's call to the love of others. We will grow cold and God will grow distant. And this, by the way, is a pattern we have seen repeated in the church over and over and over again. The only way we can avoid it is to be vigilant in our experience of the love of God. To be authentic in our experience of the gospel. To make sure we're being real and not just going through the motions. So, God is not likely going to call you to give up your foreskin. But He is going to call you to sacrifice for mission. Right? In the Scripture, man, there's, there's no clergy laity split. There's no difference between me, a full-time worker for the church, and you, a member, a tender, a follower of Jesus, right? Every person in Trailhead is responsible for the mission of Trailhead. Laodicea became lukewarm. It wasn't just the pastor. It was the body. It wasn't just the elders. It was, it was everyone, right? And Jesus was knocking at the door saying, man, anyone can open this door. Anyone can invite me back in. Because every person, listen, every person affects the missional temperature of the church. Every person in the church affects the missional temperature of the church. How are you affecting the missional temperature of the church? Are you increasing it? By having a heart warmed by the love of God and passionate to experience the grace of God? Or are you decreasing it? with religious behavior that's disconnected from a heart undone by grace. So let me ask you, where is God calling you to allow Him to cut away your sinful, self-focused desires for comfort or prestige or control? Who is He calling you to reach out to with the love of God and with the message of the gospel? 
Where have you grown cold to this incredible message of infinite love? Because that's the key, you guys. If we're drifting from mission, it's because we're drifting from love. And to fix it always begins in the same place. Not by modifying our behaviors, but by renewing our experience of grace. We don't fix our hearts by changing our behavior. We, we allow God to fix our hearts as we are simply undone by being loved by an infinite loving God. A heart that is loved is a heart that is freed. And a heart that pushes into that freedom is then expanded to experience more love. All right, guys, I'm going to close this in word of prayer. I'm going to put some reflection questions on the screen, allow you to pray, and let God speak to your heart. We're going to share communion in a moment, but we'll introduce that in a moment. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you that you've not only entrusted to us a mission, you have empowered that mission with sacrifice, the genuine expression of love. You didn't just tell us about your love. You expressed your love by giving, by sacrificing, and then inviting us in to experience and benefit from that sacrifice. Lord, I pray for this church. I pray for us. Man, I don't ever want us to become a religious house of moral behavior. A group of people simply going through the motions. Content with our experience and asleep to the needs of people around us. Lord, break our hearts with love. That we might move out in love for others in genuine, self-sacrificial ways. Not concerned with self-protection, not concerned with our personal comfort, not concerned with, with the advance and prestige of this passing age. As we are going, Lord, free us that we might be disciples who make disciples. That this thing might be real, Spirit, that you might be genuinely moving, awakening our hearts, remaking us. You're the only one that can do it. And we thank you that you've done the work to make it possible. Make your name great. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.